0: I trust as you are singing together that you are singing that to the Holy Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, you're welcome. You're welcome here. We open up our hearts and open up our minds, and, and uh, the Spirit of God does amazing things. And uh, what, a, what a great atmosphere today. Thank you. Once upon a time. Once upon a time is a phrase we grew up with. When we heard once upon a time, we knew it was story time. Story time. A story was coming. Stories. We, we all grew up with stories. Some of my earliest memories are about my mother, an author, writer, and storyteller who would tuck us in bed each night and say... Once upon a time, no matter who reads or how the stories are told, we all love stories. We all love stories. The power of a story is not some distant intellectual interaction with material elements and happenings. The power of a story is not in the analysis of each character, nor the plot or the pacing. A story is far more personal than that. The power of a story lies in our entry into the story, getting into the world, imagining ourselves in the story, living for a few short moments the lives of the characters. Story time is not like entering a virtual world via digital images or a metaverse on a computer, living online fantasies or creating a virtual identity like the second life stories about a personal entry into that storybook, real or imagined, since some stories are tales and some stories are true. The most popular storybook of all time is the Bible. The Bible. The Bible? Isn't the Bible a serious book about God, about right and wrong and doctrines and beliefs? Yes, the Bible includes All of those things. But the Bible is really a storybook. It tells us about a God who interacts with real people in a real world. Lots of stories, all true. Some really weird, but all true. Entering into the story is the key to the understanding of the Bible. The stories of the Bible gives us knowledge and understanding and information and the tools with which to live a productive life. And the key is to enter into the story, to put yourself into the story, getting into their world, imagining yourself in the story, living for a few moments the lives of the characters. The Bible comes alive when we put ourselves into the story, not as spectators, but as participants. But a year and a half ago, we walked through the book of Genesis. Genesis. We looked at how God put himself into the story of human beings, not as a spectator, but as a participant. God in relationship with his people. We finished Genesis with the story of Joseph. In the Old Testament, God injected himself into the story, interacting with the nation of Israel, with the Hebrew people. In the New Testament, God entered the story physically, Jesus, the Son of God, becoming one of us. Not a spectator, but a participant in the story. Then we came to the book of Acts, and we read the story of how God enters into everyone's individual story by sending his Holy Spirit to live inside, inside each of us who believe, animating our lives and unfolding our story, not as a spectator, but as a participant and as an empowerer of our story. Today, we're going to begin a series in the book of Exodus. And I challenge each of you to read and reread this story. Get into the story, not as a distant spectator, but as an intimate participant. As we travel through Exodus, we'll see three major themes, three major themes. Number one is God's plan for deliverance, God's plan for deliverance. Number two, God's guidance for morality. And number three, God's order for worship, God's order for worship. And I'd like to start and get into the story. So we're going to turn to Exodus, the first chapter, Exodus 1. It's on page 44 in the book in the rack in front of you, also beyond the projection. Exodus 1, as we begin this story. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to, the, to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiprah and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Some of you here this morning may identify with the midwives. Some of you may identify with the vigorous Hebrew women, whatever that might be. Others may say, my life is more like a slave since I have to work so hard. Well, this chapter can really be expressed in four words, all having to do with God and his relationship with people. Four words that have to do with God's relationship with you and me, his people. These are four words of the storyline, four words of the storyline. The first word is covenant, covenant covenant. In verse 7, it says, But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. This fruitfulness that we read about was part of the covenant. A, a covenant has to do with promises. It was a contract. It was an agreement between God and his people, Israel. Very, very important that we understand what a covenant was. If we're to understand the Old Testament story, we must understand Covenant. Now, covenant really started in Genesis 12, the story of the covenant, Genesis 12:1 to 3. And I put these passages, I think we have on, on the projection as well. Yes, um, the Lord said to Abram, is verse 12, 1 to 3, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God chose one man and his family to bless all of us. In Genesis 17, 1-7, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God almighty, Mighty. walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will greatly increase your numbers. That was the covenant. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant, my agreement, my contract with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God entered Abram's story and Abraham's story. And really it's the beginning of our story with a covenant, an agreement. And with that, he had a plan. What was God's plan? God's plan was blessing, multiplication, fruitfulness, and influence for righteousness. This was God's plan. Blessing, multiplication, fruitfulness, and influence for righteousness. God's purpose, letter B, is that all the peoples on earth would be blessed through you. You. Now, God's purpose for blessing was not so Abram could live a good life. And he did live a good life. But he was blessed in order to be a blessing, to be a blessing. Now, God blesses us. And we can say, we can look at all the incredible blessings he's given us. But that's not the end purpose. The end purpose is to be a blessing. Why does God pour out his financial blessings on our lives? So we can hang on to them? No. So we can let go of them and let our financial blessings flow to others. Blessed to be a blessing. God gives us gifts and abilities. Why? To be a blessing. God's purpose in the contract, the covenant for all of us, is always so that we can have this outward flow of being a blessing. God selected this one person, Abram, which he became Abraham, And he blessed him so that it's through him that we could eventually be blessed. And that's why we're sitting here today. That's why we're here today. God has blessed Eau Claire Wesleyan Church. Why? So we can enjoy all God's blessings? Yes and no. Not just yes and no, but to be a conduit of God's love and blessing to those that are in need, those that need to hear about This covenant, this God that has a relationship and wants to have a relationship with us personally through Jesus. We exist for that reason. For that reason. There's a continuation of the theme in the covenant in Genesis 45. God's speaking to Joseph here, and it says, Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourself for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in this land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. So we see the beginning of this covenant was Abram who became Abraham. Isaac was next. Jacob and then there's Joseph. J- Joseph is a continuation of that covenant. And it wasn't just to save Israeli lives, it was to save the lives of millions of Egyptians too. Jacob was a or Joseph was a continuation. He was blessed to be a blessing. And in Exodus 1 7, we hear it again. Where in verse 7, he says, But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. So God had a plan. He took this one guy, made a covenant with him, built this nation, and at this point in time, there it, when they are in Egypt, there were 70, only seventy of them. Until we get to chapter one, when they multiply, that's God's purpose. Then we look at God's promised relationship. God's promised relationship in the Old Testament, Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three, says, "I will be your God." What does this tell us about God? God keeps His promises. God is faithful. He promised a plan. He promised a purpose and a relationship, and He delivers. Now, see, what does that have to do with us today? It's all this history. Some of you, how many of you liked history in school? How many of you liked math better? Okay, anybody? Okay, I didn't like math at all. History was better. But you look at this history and say, what, what is all this history? What is this history? If we put ourselves into this story, we realize that following all of this history that happened in Exodus, Jesus came. Okay, Jesus came. We get to the New Testament. And he established, there was this covenant they had, but he established a better covenant that exceeded the old covenant. And what was that covenant? Matthew 26, 28 says, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What was that covenant? We celebrated at communion. That covenant was the shedding of his blood which paid for our sins so that we could have personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That was the new covenant in the blood. See, this whole thing goes back to Abram and Abraham and all the way through history of Israel and came to Jesus. And of course, that now comes down to us today, to us today. And this new covenant was established not by the blood of animals, but bought by the blood of God himself for the forgiveness of our sins. There was this promised relationship. Without this new covenant of the blood, we couldn't have this relationship with God. Hebrews 9, 12, and 15 says this. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For this reason, Christ... Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, I want to challenge you to get into the story. Some of you are going, where is this going? Where is this going? All throughout history, men and women committed horrible acts And most of us would probably say we don't commit horrible acts, but I think we would probably all say that we've sinned. Okay, Um, if you if you haven't sinned, you don't belong here. But if you if if you sin, then you're in good company because all of us have sinned. And the consequences of sin was isolation from God, and God had to provide a way through a new covenant so that we could reestablish that relationship with God, so our sins could be forgiven. And God can forgive people if they ask for forgiveness. Not because of some great act of contrition or something that we've done to earn this relationship with God, but because God shed his own blood to pay for our sins so we could have that relationship, that covenant relationship. The covenant relationship. As we walk through Exodus, we're going to see the humanity and sin of people and we're going to also see the love and forgiveness of God. Why? Because of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and so on. Now, we're a long ways from Exodus. Covenant is the first word. And I want to lay that as a foundation. The demonstration of that covenant was the fruitfulness of God's blessing in order that we could be a blessing as well. Now, we get back to Exodus, the next word that describes this story. In verse 8, it says, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. The second word is change. 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 Picture living in Egypt where Pharaoh knew about the founder of your, your nation, Joseph, how he saved them. All the people knew and appreciated the history and his contributions. But that was so 400 years ago. Okay? 400, I, when I think about the perspective of how long they were in Egypt, I think about our nation, our country. We've been around about 240 years. Okay? And, and, of course, the history's been rewritten a few times. I, I won't go into that. But we have a history, and our country's been around only 240 years. And they had been around, they had been in Egypt for 400 years. You can imagine how many generations. And the new king didn't know and he didn't care about who these Israelites, who Joseph was. I don't care. That was 400 years ago. And he saw the Hebrews as a threat, not an asset. And this fact brought something called change, change. Maxie Dunham says the essence of Christian faith is not certainty, but it's trust. Yet, yes, we have certainty in our eternal destination, forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, morality, and truth. But when it comes to life, our story, things change. Things change. Things can change. Our stories are fluid. Okay? Our stories are in process of being written. There are only three certainties in life. Someone once said, death, taxes, and change. Change. All of us experience change. Some of you can go back in your history and you can look at the incredible changes in your lifetime. We have life cycle changes. You know, we have birth, we have preschool, we have school age, college, 20-somethings, marriage and family and career. We grow older. Our children leave the nest. Our parents age and we need our help. Our stories are in constant flux and constant change. Think about technology, technology. Before 1992, the internet was just marginally used. We kind of heard about this thing called the internet. I remember sending my very first overseas email. This is a big deal. 1995, 1995, I sent an email from my office computer to my brother in Taiwan. He was a missionary, and it, it worked. It was like, wow, this is absolutely revolutionary. What happened? over the last 30 years, 40 years. Our vocabulary has changed. Online, download, tweet, Twitter, PC, Apple, mouse, megapixels, bits, bytes, live stream, FaceTime, text message, iPhone, iTunes, Drop Calls, Venmo, Cash App, TikTok, Telegram, Dropbox, Signal, Zoom, Netflix, Hulu, Spotify, Uber, Podcast, and you go on and on. None of those were words before. Those aren't words. Some of you are going, What? That's true. And then we just we just figure out our existing software on our on our cell phone and then they upgrade and you saw it messes everything up anybody else have that issue it's like i don't want to upgrade my phone i like my iphone 3 okay change is unsettling and we all deal with that that was what was happening here in this story change now there's there are two different types of change one is continuous change uh Continuous change means it's expected change. In other words, you brought your first child through, through potty training and preschool, et cetera, and then the teen years, you, you have kind of this, this roadmap that's expected. It's something that's gone before, something you remember, and it's continuous change, and you understand this change, and that's kind of predictable change. We know that this is going to happen at certain ages, okay? Um, then there's something called discontinuous change. Discontinuous change is disruptive, unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen, what? COVID, that's a, that's a totally discontinuous change. What happens? It's just so many things that happen. Challenges are assumptions. Your present skills don't even apply. It's like, I, I don't know how to deal with this. I've never dealt with this before. That's discontinuous change. It's unpredictable, it's random. And that's a kind of changes that we experience. Now, there are some continuous changes predictable that we experience, but most change nowadays, and and you can say this, is unpredictable. It's crazy. Change. And most of the time, change comes from outside our control. It comes into the story of our lives, and it pushes us out of the comfortable nest into thin air. Now, for the Hebrew people, back to the text, okay, They've been living in this land 400 years. They knew kind of what to expect. And if they were allowed to, they would have stayed in Egypt if God had not brought change and made it uncomfortable. The Hebrew people, they would have stayed in Egypt, just like we would all still be using Windows 3.1. Some of you say, was there a 3.1? Yeah, there was. I like 3.1, actually. We may choose comfort over potential if God doesn't send change to our lives. You know, that's just, that's what happens. And change is not easy. But change can be good. Change can be good. God sent it to them. He sends it to us. Now, the third word, it's your favorite and mine. The third word that describes this is adversity. (laughs) <laughs> adversity again put yourself into the story forced labor slave labor worked them ruthlessly it says they made their lives bitter with hard work this was not working overtime on a computer programming with no overtime pay this was hard physical labor and pharaoh says i will weaken them by adversity but instead of making the hebrews weaker it made them stronger okay and it was playing right into god's hands preparing the people to leave adversity we're we're not really crazy about adversity not really crazy about that my older brother um, was an excellent tennis player Um, i was less excellent than he was he was actually the best in his high school he was he played number one singles which meant he was a top player in his school and i remember him once saying we played against each other and he said to me, I need to practice against someone who's better than me or I won't get any better. That was true. He wanted more competition or adversity. Just so you know, 15 years later, the last time I played my brother in tennis, I beat him. Just, just, just saying. I hope he listens to this message wherever you are, Tim. Okay. How many times have we seen in our personal life how adversity or conflict, opposition, or hard times made us stronger, made us better. And as we need, we rely on God and his strength. Then our faith also is made stronger. We just don't like it. We don't like it. God does that. And in the middle of adversity, God was multiplying the Hebrew people, making them stronger, stronger. Remember the covenant? God promises to multiply them into a great nation. Even the leader of an entire country, the pharaoh, could not countermand God's promises, God's covenant. God had a plan. Let me just say this for your life. No one, no organization, no government agency, no individual person can get in the way of God's promises for you. No one and nothing can get in the way of God's promises for you. God alone will write your story. God alone writes your story. The Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome, and he wrote this. He said, that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Wow. Wow. He also wrote in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Wow. His story, your story, it's different. Nobody is going to interrupt God's story for you. He's writing your story. And it includes covenant. It includes Adversity. Now, against this backdrop was Pharaoh's command to put male babies to death. And we see the fourth word, and that was commitment, commitment. Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser writes, even though these women lied to Pharaoh, they are praised for their outright refusal to take infant lives. Alan Cole says, even if they lied, it was not for their deceit that they are commended, but for their refusal to take infant lives. Peter and John talked about the fact that there are times we have to obey God rather than man. Rather than man. There's a higher authority than human authority, and commitment to God must always supersede all others. As we look in the Old Testament, we see that Daniel was forbidden from praying publicly. He prayed anyway. Got thrown in the lion's den for it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the image. You look in the New Testament, Stephen, Peter, John, and Paul, all of them preached Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, crucified, buried, and resurrected. And three, three out of those four, died martyrs' deaths. They died for their faith. They were forbidden from preaching the word of God. They, they knew Jesus had resurrected. They saw him. They were with him. One of the, one of the parts of the heritage, and those of you that, that are familiar with the Wesleyan church know this. Wesleyan pastors stood up against slavery in the mid-1800s, even though it was legal in some states. At great personal risk, they set slaves free and participated in the Underground Railroad. The Wesleyan Church was founded out of that movement to set slaves free against racism. At great personal risk, one person was quoted as saying, we don't have enough rope to hang all the Wesleyan pastors. That's true. They stood against it. The Wesleyan Church was founded through these issues in this time. There's great precedent in the moral and political activism of Wesleyans. That's our history, and that's our heritage. Now, we have some issues in front of us. These didn't come up overnight. There's a law in Canada, I'm not going to talk about the trucker thing, that's That's just a whole other thing. Um, Men and women of courage in Ottawa. But a law proposed in Canada says that if you define marriage as a man and a woman, or if you say there are only two genders, male and female, there's no such thing as transgender, then it's called hate speech. Hate speech. And... John MacArthur, now you, you may or may not like John MacArthur. He's an incredible man of God. I don't agree with all his theology, but he basically preached a sermon. And he said, basically, the Bible says God created male and female. There are, transgenderism is not real. And he said, there's, it's biology, simple biology and physiology. There are men and women. It's male and female. And it appeared on YouTube. And, of course, he took it down because it was called hate speech. Hate speech. It, it's worse up there, but it's come down to some parts of the United States, too, where if you preach the Word of God on marriage, on homosexuality, on any kinds of sin, they can call it hate speech. And there are pastors in Europe and other places being arrested and put in prison for preaching what the Word of God makes very clear, very clear. We are called to declare the truth, and we must obey God rather than man. Most of us are going to have to pay a price, but someday there may be a price to pay. But you must obey God rather than man. That's commitment. These ladies we are putting their life on the line by preserving the birth of babies. And if any of you have been involved in the pro-life movement, you know the kinds of opposition and the kind of abuse and all the things that have happened, people trying to save the life of infants. Obey God rather than men. That's commitment. We have a great example here of a pro-life movement way back in Exodus. These women, courageous women. Get into the story. Covenant, change, adversity and commitment. Remember as we go through this, this, this is God's story, but this is also our story. And God is writing your story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us this story. You don't whitewash anything. You show what it is. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us as we move through Exodus. And Lord, just as we live our daily life, you are writing our story as individuals, as families, as a church, as a nation. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you, by your grace and your strength, would help us to understand our story and how you want our story to read. And we thank you that you are intimately acquainted with all our ways. And you continue to move us forward in your blessing in order for us to be a blessing. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we? Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship and the power of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. God bless you.